Welcome to Running Off the Rails. My name is Raymond O'Connor. And I'm Ariel Rasco. And today, we're going to be catching up. We missed recording Running Off the Rails for our February 1st episode because life just got a little bit crazy <laughs> for us. I think it was January 2nd and Ariel, you sent me a text being like, oh my god, I didn't even realize <laughs> that this much time had passed um, because that that happens sometimes. So, so, but we're here, we're here, we're back. Uh, we, we haven't quite gotten a chance to, um, prepare an episode like we typically do. So today is going to be informal. Ariel and I are just going to be catching up, uh, because Ariel and I actually haven't hung out, uh, together for quite some time either. So there's plenty for us to catch up about. Um, this is the exact type of podcast episode that I don't like listening to. So if this is not for you and you don't listen to the episode, I at least completely understand. You'll hurt Ariel's feelings, but I I will understand. I have empathy for you. <laughs> yeah, yeah, that's right. But it, it is a funny episode because I think like, I'm genuinely curious what you've been up to, Ray, and I think I have some things that I've been doing that you might be interested to hear so yeah this is really like <laughs> off the cuff you know normally ray and the i suspense is killing me yeah i mean normally i think we really kind of know what's going on in each other's lives you know in a vague sense at the very least but uh there's been a lot going on so yeah Ray, like what what the heck have you been up to yeah yeah i mean so we recorded our january 1st episode well ahead of time um, so really since the last time we recorded, it was the, the holidays and, and I started a new job in October and I joined a company, a venture studio company as the second software engineer. So we build startups. That's what my company does. And the principal engineer who is the engineer who was kind of supposed to be mentoring me decided to to part ways with the venture studio so oh my god work has been insane just absolutely insane uh hiring a replacement <laughs> principal engineer has been my primary responsibility so designing that interview process and conducting those interviews trying to figure out how to interview software engineers who are way more qualified than i am or will be for possibly years uh, was very challenging and um, it didn't just take up a lot of time. I wouldn't say that I was working cr like crazy long hours, but it it was a total sponge for all of my creative energy. Like all of my extra energy was being totally sucked up into this initiative. Yeah, I mean, Ray, you were you were working at the same company that that where we met. Uh, up until this company and uh, I cannot imagine a like work environment or scenario more different than what you're describing from your last job like I when I moved to my new company you know there were 100 employees 40 engineers and I was like learning so so much about being at a place that 
you know, you have to wear a lot of hats and you have to focus a lot of creative energy on like building processes and systems and like, right, going from, you know, a company that had 10,000 engineers to two and then one just you, I, I cannot imagine how shocking that must be. Like, it was so shocking to me to go from like 10,000 to 40 and like all the things I had to learn really put like my butt like on top of a fire, you know, I was like felt like I had so many things that were like immediately important that were like very difficult to learn. I'm just like conceptualizing what you're going through to me is like insane right now. Yeah. Yeah. It's, it, it's a, it's a lot. I think, I think what's helping me cope is like ignorance (laughs) of how how hard it actually is. Like I, I almost am blessed with being surprised and blindsided every day with the new stuff that's coming up. I think that if I knew everything that I was going to have to do on the fly two months ago, like if someone was like, this is what your next two months are going to look like because uh, this this engineer left, the principal engineer left, I think I would have had like an, an emotional breakdown <laughs> at that juncture point. But I was I was lucky enough to be able to take it one day at a time. And uh, we found an amazing, an amazing principal engineer um, who will be joining us very soon, who I've worked with in the past. So I, I just know that it's going to be an awesome partnership. So so things are things are looking good. And that's that's helped me to take on my like primary work responsibilities, which is building building a startup, like a tech startup, uh, the technology for, for the startup. And, uh, yeah. Yeah. So thanks yeah, I, for indulging me. <laughs> no, I feel like I have like 50 things that are coming to my head that are all just like dumb technical questions that I think nobody, yeah. <laughs> <Their audience is laughs> nobody would care about. Yeah, that's right. That's right. That but, right. And you know, just from like the high level standpoint, I don't know. Does it make you like want to continue? You know, you think like 10, you know, years from now, I mean, maybe you're not even working in software 10 years from now, but like, if you were long-term going to stick into software, like, would you want like these, like really small, uh, like super tightly knit teams versus the like bigger corporate structure that you had before? Is there like, you know, do you feel like you have a grasp, like this is where I want to be or or do you miss the structure? (laughs) Yeah, no, it's a great question. Uh, there's a certain amount of comfort that comes with a corporate setting. Um, like there's, there's less responsibility. Like if this, if this company fails because I failed to build the product and it really is my responsibility at the end of the day, uh, that that's an immense like burden to bear because the founder who's a very successful professional has, has staked their entire professional like reputation on this startup um and like is leveraging their network and all their relationships and there are a few venture capital folks who have invested enormous amounts of money into this this project so yeah it's it's a lot of it's a lot of pressure i i hope that i don't fail (laughs) yeah it's really it's really but i but i take it one day at a time and 
I got really good at breaking down really big projects into small consumable steps. Um, like just to give some example, uh, we know that we need to deploy the system that we've been building. So like we've been writing the code for folks who aren't engineers, we've been writing the code and we have a lot of the product working on our local laptops. And one of the things that the principal engineer who I used to work with that they were supposed to help to mentor me with before they, they left was was AWS, uh, Amazon Web Services. And that's where we want to deploy this app that we're building. So I need to go and learn AWS. And AWS is this huge, sprawling knowledge base. It's like a hundred different services that are all their own products that you can be like specialized in. And that is a daunting task, but I found a really, really effective learning resource. And um, I'm 10%, 12% through my first AWS certification, <laughs> you Whoa. know, like learning, learning the content day by day, 1% at a time. And this time next year, maybe I'll have two AWS certifications and and I'll be better then than I am today. <laughs> nice. Yeah, I was going to say, like, all these, half of the, like, technical questions that my mind was spinning down were, like, all the different, like, infrastructure and DevOps stuff that I'm imagining mm -hmm. you have to do. Because, like, those were the hardest things for me when I left Wayfair of, like, what I had to learn at this new smaller company. Like, I was deploying my own code, and I was maintaining our AWS servers. And I think it took me... I think like at the beginning of two years, like two different years that I was at the company, like my personal goals were to like understand like on a better level, the AWS like services and the AWS skills that I was like dipping my toes into. You know, it definitely took me like more than two years to feel really comfortable with that kind of stuff. Cause like, yeah, Wayfair, just like at a company with 10,000 people, like you cannot expect everybody to be an expert in like everything it you will just like completely waste so like hundreds of thousands of hours of man time and it's like we'll make everything worse because everybody will like do something a little differently and so at like a smaller company uh you don't have like a whole team of you know dozens of people managing all these things because that's too expensive for a smaller company so it's like this give and take and uh i felt like that was the point where I was really doing two jobs. Like at Wayfair, I was doing one job, which was like writing code. And, and at my current company, I'm doing like those two specific jobs of like writing the code and managing the infrastructure. And like managing infrastructure is a completely different job. Like you have a completely different set of skills. And I don't know, maybe this is getting down like too much of a rabbit hole, but it's like the hardest thing. It was by far the hardest thing for me when I switched companies. Yeah. Yeah. And it was on Friday, I was in a really dark place. It's been a roller coaster of emotions. Yeah. Because on Friday, <clears throat> I just tried to do it. Like I just tried to to do it all. You know, like okay, we need this. We like I, I can't take the time to learn all this. Uh, so we need. I just need to deploy it. <laughs> just you know, just a one step process. Just yeah. <laughs> just make it done. <laughs> so it's done, and that didn't go well. Right, like the the documentation is very dense, um, 
but luckily I was able to speak with the principal engineer who's joining our team who knows AWS really well. One of the skills that I explicitly hired for yeah. uh, when we were when we were looking for our next principal engineer because I knew it was a, a shortcoming of my own skill set. And he was like, it's going to be okay. Like, I'm, I'm going to be there in a few days. And in the meantime, you should, this is, this is my favorite AWS learning resource. He's, he's gone through multiple courses to, to learn a bunch of AWS stuff. Uh, just, just start plugging away at these videos and, and implementing the things that you're learning in the videos for the, for the startup as you go. And I was like, okay, <laughs> that's what I'll do. <laughs> and that's what, that's what I've been doing this week. In addition to all of my regular, uh, job requirements that I, and I've been doing it in my free time as well, because I'm, I'm not that naive that I think that I have a month to like stop building to, to learn this stuff. It's, you got to do it all at once. Um, yeah. that's the scariest and, part for sure. It's like... Yeah. And it is scary. And, um, but but I also it's I'm not just salaried right like I have I have um, a material st- stake and upside in the success of this startup so it's it's not like I'm it's not like I'm working and not being compensated for my time right like the more the more time I could put infinite time into this project and potentially see infinite upside <laughs> depending on. The success of the project so so in from that perspective i'm being compensated regardless of how much of my own free time air quotes free time i put into learning aws to to skill up as quickly as possible yeah and you can obviously take these skills and like they'll make you a better engineer for the rest of your life and so that's right i don't know it's it's an interesting thing to talk about this whole endeavor. I know somebody who uh, had two start. They're like forty now, so they're a bit older than I am, a bit older than us, and uh, they've gone through, you know, of the different startups that they've jumped around to because they've you know built up these skills and can really help um, take a small company and build the foundation for them. You know, he's taken these skills to a few different startups, maybe five or six, and two of them succeeded. And this person has more money than maybe I will ever have in my life. And, you know, he's, he's 40, he's not that much older than me and he can retire and, and ski for the rest of his life. And it's a, I don't know. It's, it's a very strange world. There are lots of feelings that I have about, uh, that the, uh, you know, lots yeah. of people, there's, lots a, there's of people, a lot to unpack there. There's a lot to unpack, sure. you know, like <laughs> you're working so hard and like lots of people, uh, don't get the opportunity to like, get those like equity exits when they work really hard for a very long time. And some people like software engineers do. And anyways, it's, I think, um, on the more, uh, the less like political and more just like personal engagement side of things. Just, um, I knew that, yeah, if I did something very well at Wayfair, like it could help the company. But if I do something really well at my current company, like it, uh, is like felt by everybody and everybody will know that, Hey, Ariel, did this great thing and, and we're really proud and the company itself as a whole is like significantly better off because of the work that you put in and we appreciate you and and there's a sense of like camaraderie and a sense of like personal mm-hmm. investment that's really great and then i think like the flip side of that is you know all that like work and all that intensity is like 
it was nice to just be able to like kind of plug away at like a more bigger corporate job and uh in the times in my life in the last like three four years that i've really wanted to deprioritize work um Mm -hmm. it was harder and my the i had to talk more with the company and like the director of engineering you know who's something i would have never talked to at like our previous company right to be like hey i need time away like how can we make this work like i'm going through family stuff and and things like that and it's like i don't know ray and i have talked a lot about (laughs) there's been a lot of like downsizing in tech companies but like back when we were at wayfair it was just like oh like I've heard this of like Microsoft too, and they're kind of companies where you know, like they, they, these are like the corporate. You can kind of like lay, lay back, take it a bit easy, just like help the like company. Autopilot, just, yeah, kinda, yeah, and like yeah. you get really good at your day job, and then that makes it so that you don't have to invest yeah. as much energy into your day job to to do what you're getting paid to do. Yeah, is <laughs> how it works. And I think I like really. Uh, could have benefited from that at the times of my life where like I really didn't mm. wanted to prioritize work and I wanted to prioritize other things and like now I'm I think in the last year and a half like I've gotten to a place at my current company where like my responsibilities have not ramped up you know it's like every year you get more senior, more senior and your responsibilities like continue to ramp up and like now mm-hmm. we've like stabled out as a company a little bit we've gotten over that hump of being like a growth mindset company where we need to like build and build and build and now we're stable up until like okay we have some good products let's maintain them and like that's a much easier lifestyle uh it's true yeah yeah for sure so i don't know i appreciate i think like you know i definitely and just to be clear so that no one no one out there is too envious like i'm not the founder of this startup if the startup has an amazing exit my life doesn't change all that much. It's like a it's like a really nice bonus. <laughs> it's kind yeah, of, it's kind of how it works. <laughs> yeah, but I just mean like these are the skills that get you in a place where you can, yes. if you want to, live that life where you're like jumping, you know, like going for through like okay, I'm gonna check out this startup. I'm gonna help them build foundation, and if they, it looks like things are going well, I'll stick with it for another three four years. And like mm-hmm. you can get in these cycles. It's like a weird world of you just like are evaluating your own company for like not like how much you like the company but like if i stick my head down and just like work here and like deal with the miserableness of like you know some startups can be you know like this really like 20 hour days kinds of things you know then like oh then maybe i'll be able to retire when i'm 40 kind of thing yeah that's like i feel like those are the skills you're building up right now (laughs) yeah absolutely to to be able to build a to be able to market yourself to as an individual contractor, right, is, is kind of what we're talking about and say, I can build your entire app, your entire, like, say it's a, um, say it's like a robo-advisor or something like that. I can build your, I can build your entire app, AW, like all the way from code to infrastructure to like real working thing on the internet. And I can do it all myself all the way up to you having tens of thousands of customers. That's a pretty powerful <laughs> pitch. And and you can point to the times that you've done it already, right? And be like, go and talk to those founders um, and ask them whether or not I did what I'm telling you that I can do. Um, so, yeah. so I am not that person now, just to be clear. I hope that I will be someday. 
um, yeah, if I keep, I mean, if I it, keep plugging along, I, I'll bet, I'll bet within a year you will, you will know so much more about AWS than I do. After like, you know, I work with it in like a working manner where I have people at my company who are like experts in AWS, but I have mm. like they're just too busy to like do everything, so I have to do stuff. But I can still like put down a meeting with them and they can like work me through it. Like I feel like you're gonna have like even less it sounds like you have even less support than than i I mean i had like 40 other people working at the company you know you have so much less support i feel like in in a year or two like you're gonna like you'd blow me out of the water in aws knowledge because you'll have to like yeah dig so deep into the stuff because i'll have to do it (laughs) because i either figure it out and learn the material or or my company dies (laughs) no exactly (laughs) it falls over no the stakes are not that like at the at the end of the day if if i really can't figure out this aws stuff there are aws contractors right that that it makes sense to to bring in so that I can do the things that I am hyper spe- like specialized at instead of learning uh, this content from scratch. But it it makes sense to do at least for the next five days, <laughs> seven <laughs> days. So so I'm giving myself that much runway. Nice, yeah. Look, I mean, yeah. To, we kind of did go off a little bit into the technical world, but um, yeah, I don't know. I mean, you you've got a dog, you've got a new house like it's not all it's not all work stuff yeah. yeah so melissa and i closed on a house in maine uh on january 6th which has also been a huge time suck for <laughs> anyone who for anyone who um has bought a house they you know that it's moving is a lot of work and also the house the house is in pretty good shape but it it has it has projects that it needs uh when we when we moved in uh, Melissa and I were, were just sat down on the couch after a long day of unpacking boxes and all of a sudden water started dripping from the light fixture no. next to me onto the couch. Oh my God. And me and Melissa looked at each other and like Summer's sitting on the couch in between us and she's like watching the water dropping, you know, and we're like, was that water? We like refused to believe that it was actually happening yeah if you believe hard enough that it's just like make believe (laughs) then it will go away um so somehow during the inspection we missed looking at the heating pipes that were under the the rate the radiators and and the one of the heating pipes above the living room had corroded like it had years of corrosion and sprung a leak the week that we moved in um so (laughs) so our ceiling was leaking for like five days because you you can't get a plumber to come over even for an emergency plumbers are like okay we'll be thanks for calling uh we're we're totally booked for the next seven business days we'll be able to get somebody out there eight days from now for your emergency wow (laughs) what a great housewarming gift That's the world that we live in right now. Is yeah. I mean, we really need some more, some more skilled, uh, like plumbers, electricians, and stuff. Where we desperately need you. I mean, I would have paid triple to get somebody there that day, right? Yeah, like, absolutely. Yeah, there's demand. There's just not enough, uh, not enough skilled people out there. Yeah, you're like me feeling comfortable in my new home, so I can like sit down and take a breath 
is worth whatever rate you will charge me. Like, please. Well, also just the extended water damage. Oh, yeah. Like, yeah, the, like, the damage to the ceiling was way worse after the days of waiting for a plumber to come. There's only so much that you can do. Um, Especially, like, we had a fan running, like, on the pipe to try and, to try and, like, stem. Mm Mm-hmm the water flow you don't want to put like a paper towel on it because then it like sucks the water out of the pipe that much faster (laughs) you know you don't want to you also don't want to touch it too much because this is like this isn't like a uh like a bad fitting it's it's corrosion so right so like like you start wrapping it in duct tape and you aggravate it you can make it way worse so much worse so you're just like don't touch anything until the plumber gets here please uh and you can't you can't turn off the the heat because you don't want like the pipes to freeze i guess you could drain all the water out of your house while you're waiting for the heating techs to come but heating tech plumber yeah no 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 it was interesting <laughs> it's interesting Wow. It's no good. Yeah, I mean, it's been an amazing, amazing experience with its uh, ups and downs, just yeah. being a new house, new job at the same time. <laughs> but you also got yourself a new house of of a, of a kind, of a sort, right, Ariel? Yeah, I've been working on this van slowly but surely. Uh, everything takes longer than I expect, and uh, I don't have, like, a, a garage for it, so I'm working, like, out on the street mm-hmm. or in, like, parking lots. Um, but my friend came up from San Diego, and he's pretty handy and been helping me, and I'm getting some stuff professionally installed uh, in, like, two weeks, and then some more stuff professionally done after that, and then hopefully I'll be able to, like, you know, finish up just putting in, like, some pieces of furniture that I'll just, like, screw down to the floor, and then it'll be, like, mostly ready to go. So, I don't know, my goal originally was, like, March. That is, you know, absolutely nowhere close to happening. Now I'm thinking more, like, July or August, but, uh, you know, it'll get there eventually. Um, But that's, like, my third biggest thing that I've been working on. I feel like this whole thing has been crazy. Uh, I did another... Uh, like week and a half of like outdoor safety certifications and stuff. So cool. Yeah, that was those were big. I'm doing it like one for climbing, one for uh, more mountaineering stuff, and so really like the last thing I have left to do that is like on my um, like wilderness preparedness stuff is a uh, first aid, which is <laughs> maybe I should have done that one earlier, but I've done like um, <laughs> probably like cumulative like twenty days of just these um. Uh, these like airy courses which are avalanche safety and then like snow travel safety which is about like ice tools and then a bunch of like um, rock climbing uh, safety courses um, which are just about uh, like specific gear for um, climbing when there isn't uh, like protection preset up so you have traditional climbing it's when you put um, your own protection you like bring protection with you to the mountain you climb up and then you like stick uh something in a crack so you can stick like uh like a big metal piece of uh like a square or a hexagon and it it just gets like stuck in a crack uh that's one thing you can do and that's kind of hilarious that like that's the thing you trust your life on um or there are these things called cams which uh you like open a spring that has like very very high uh strength and there's like some mechanical advantage you get so that you can do it with like with your hand but then once you place it on the rock it can like hold onto a car um ostensibly oh wow it's like this 
Yeah, but you have to do it right because um, if it doesn't make like good contact with the rock uh, in the right way, the and, rock and, explodes. Yeah, there, that that can happen, uh, or it just yeah. I mean, the rock really can explode. Um, <laughs> I mean, it sounds like it, right? Yeah. Um, it or like it you're just dealing with like a like a micro explosion explosive thing. There's so much. I mean, it, it it's like um, potential energy, right? That's like stored in this object yeah and um i mean like there's a difference between i mean it can hold onto a car not like the cars if the car fell like you'd fall from it wouldn't hold but it like just it can hold the weight and so what happens is like oh if you fall 50 feet you will actually above the thing you actually will generate a lot of force um Mm. and so like if it's not set right you can generate enough force that like you'll rip it out um and so Uh, You know, you trust your life to these things, so it's important to, like, really learn how they work and stuff like that. Anyways, that's, like, number one. That's, like, my smallest, like, bucket list thing. The second one is um, I've been organizing a fundraiser uh, for – to raise money for uh, ALS support for – or support for families with a family member with ALS. So um, my family has had three people in the family. It's, like, there's a version of ALS that's genetic, and that's the one we have. So – that is like a big deal for me and my family and um I uh, this is something I've wanted to do for a long time but uh, because of like work and other stuff didn't really have the bandwidth um but I've finally been working to uh organize a little bit of a fundraiser so that's like um not quite uh ready to uh like you know it's not in the <laughs> so we end won't phases. talk about it yet we won't talk about it too <laughs> yeah. much but it's very cool <laughs> starting now no that I mean yeah. that sounds awesome all right so, um, and um I, people reach out on the show um to to ask about how we're doing when we when we share that you and i aren't aren't going through or going through tough times right like like not not sometimes not the toughest things that people go through but like tough in relative terms to to what our day-to-day is or or what anybody's day-to-day is and and we really appreciate it so once that fundraiser is ready to go we'll 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 share details with everyone because that's the exact sort of thing that our listeners um typically reach out and and ask for more details about so Yeah, yeah um i think uh for me the thing that like if you've heard of like the ice bucket challenge or if everybody remembers that random meme from like oh, yeah. four years ago or something uh that was all um money that was raised for the als association um which is a group that uh like my family got a lot of support from and that i'm working with so that was a long time ago uh and also i think a lot of that money i mean a lot of that money went to everything but i think the majority of it did go to research and uh i think personally i was just more impacted by the arm of the foundation that deals with support so it's you know not the scientific side but it's like hey uh you need uh, a bunch of things in your house like um people with als like they have trouble with motor skills so um we got like a special like ipad with a bunch of uh software loaded on it to help um the people in my family with als to communicate and to like um do a lot of different things that they would with their other technology in a way that required easier inputs. Um, even like utensils, like forks and knives, like, um, you can still use a fork and knife when you have ALS. And and I think it just like adds a lot of dignity to your life to be able to like 
you know, eat with your own hands and not have somebody have to like feed you like you're a child again or, and, um, uh, but instead they have these like special forks and knives that are made that are like, uh, easier to hold. And, um, then we like eventually, uh, got a stairlift installed in my house, which is a very expensive thing. And the ALS association paid for all of it, like installation, got us the equipment, everything. And so like those things were amazing. Life changing. So like, yeah, yeah, so incredible. And, you know, I think the research stuff like, um, is important, but just the stuff that was meaningful to me and what I wanted to, you know, support and maybe, um, help out with other families as best I could was like that side of things of, of the things that help you, you know, once you're already affected by the disease, whereas like the research is more trying to, uh, slow symptoms down and maybe eventually cure or prevent the disease. Um, but so that's a, yeah. let's take in, I don't know, my mom's helped me a lot with that. Uh, cause she, uh, interfaced a ton with these organizations over the last five years. Um, and, but it's been something that I found really meaningful. Um, and then the last thing, which is like slightly related, um, is that, uh, I wrote a play, which is like a kind of a funny thing to do. Wait, what? Yeah. Uh, but <laughs> you have been very busy. <laughs> Dude, I know it's been an interesting time. You wrote a play? I wrote a play. What's, what's it about? Uh, and the play is also about like, um, what it's like to like have family members with ALS. So uh, it's just Understood. kind of reflecting on that experience, which I think is, um, at least to me, it, uh, it was surprisingly a very happy time in my life because uh, I think that uh, maybe other people have had experiences with degenerative diseases, but like people get sick slowly. And so what you have is this really amazing opportunity to say like, hey, this is how much time I'm going to have left. Like, let's make it good. And let's care about each other and let's smile. Like, what's the point of getting, you know, nobody's going to get an argument about like who washed the dishes, like when somebody only has a few years left to live. And uh, <laughs> I think like that's an experience I wanted to write yeah. about. Um, and I was like journaling a lot about it while I was going through it because uh, I was like, didn't want to forget the things that were like going on in my life in a very important time. And I was like, oh, like, I wanted to synthesize these feelings and process them more. And so I ended up like writing a play that's a little bit about um, like, you know, what forgiveness looks like because like when you know mm. that somebody's going to die, like you, you kind of have these questions about yourself, like, Oh, do I forgive them for the things that like I was mad at them about? <laughs> like, or do you, does, do people automatically get like, um, there's this movie, the big sick where it's like, Oh, you played the cancer card. And it's like, that's like, you know, some of the things that go through your mind when you're dealing with this stuff. It's like, Oh, like, is it you know does everything before in the relationship go away because somebody's sick or do you still like have the right to be mad at somebody even if they're dying <laughs> and uh mm-hmm. it was kind of it's like uh, all in all like yeah it was a really wonderful time in my life despite a lot of hardship um and i just thought that was interesting and and in like the synthesis of that it, it ended up being like i think a more artistic like concept to me this like very you know, it's all about the, the interplay of a bunch of different emotions. And I think like writing that down as like a journal entry is less, was less compelling and less like, uh, helpful for me than like writing something more like from an artistic perspective. So, uh, yeah, those are my <laughs> like endeavors of the last like two, three months. So, yeah. so you've been watching a lot of Netflix. Is what <laughs> yeah. <you're> right. <laughs> what did I watch? <laughs> I watched one show. No, well, no, obviously. <laughs> I, I did watch no, something. Been, it was good. <laughs> you've been productive. You've been productive. Yeah. You have not been, 
yeah, so you've been busy too. <laughs> see, see, during these these times where I've been busy, I've been like, like I hope Ariel isn't mad that I'm not more plugged in. But you, you filled <laughs> you filled the time for sure. Yeah, I think like in other times, you know, like I'll get a text from Ray being like, hey. Like, I have this idea. Do you want to record about it? Or, like, Ray might get a text from me. Like, hey, this is what I was thinking about. And uh, in this time, like, neither of us were texting each other. And so I was, I was like, oh, yeah. <laughs> we're, like, in the times where it did come up in my head, I was like, oh, we're both slammed right now. Like, clearly. <laughs> yeah. And we, I mean, we intended to record an episode for February 1st. We we wanted to. Uh, we, we posted an update to the Reddit uh, for anyone who... Uh, was wondering where last month's episode was just so so folks knew and and we're still going to do 12 episodes this year um as as we discussed but uh but yeah sometimes life sometimes life sneaks up on you and unfortunately we this is not the the way that we spend our time that funds our livelihood <laughs> it's it's other things um so those things have to take uh precedence because we got we got people to take care of. Yeah, and uh, like just two days ago or something, I found out that the other like really senior engineer on my team has like got moved off to a different team because of like there's an important project going on. So I had like these last few months where I was like, oh, work is like not killing me right now. Like this is good. I have like other things I want to prioritize. And now it's like back to like, oh, okay, Ariel, you're like Surprise. in charge of this team again. <laughs> surprise you have to work again yeah. <laughs> so that's been fun yeah yeah well it it keeps it interesting because those those periods of time of autopilot can be really can be really nice because um you can you can really pursue some passion projects i mean that's how emory's log of legendary eminences happened that's how the podcast happened during during the time where there was so much to learn about to like how to even get that first episode up and what the website was going to look like. And we had an active Instagram for <laughs> a short stint there for a few months. With amazing um, illustrations. I remember those yeah, every once in a yeah. while. They're so yeah. good. Yeah. They got like, they got like five likes, you know? Yeah. <laughs> got five. yeah. Well, yeah. I, yeah. I thought it was a cool aesthetic that maybe could, catch on and i really liked making that post-it art um like it felt creative but but the internet didn't think so maybe if tiktok had been around back then we oh, could have yeah. we could have trended on tiktok that but was like pre instagram oh my god yeah that's right what the a instagram world. algorithm wasn't uh or i guess it was just kind of right around when tiktok was was picking up steam because i remember there were like animal crossing tiktoks and Animal Crossing was the time of the pandemic. But maybe that was, that might have been months after. Oh, well, this our listeners do not want to hear us <laughs> count days. <laughs> Recreate a timeline <laughs> in our heads. We've already in, been indulging. Um, yeah, so, so yeah, so life's been crazy. But we still have had our our toes dipped in, in the fantasy world because we love it. We can't just can't just get away from it so so ariel what uh what have you been up to that is tangentially loosely related to world building dungeons and dragons uh writing fantasy not not uh not non-fiction yeah um, i 
I've recently picked up Hitchhiker's Guide. I think I've I think enough people like kept recommending it to me throughout the years that like the you know straw finally broke the camel's back, and I finished the first two books, and uh, I think it really reminded me a lot of the kind of like Spelljammer style of D and D. It's it's so deep into the like sci-fi side of things that it, it's basically fantasy. I think um, you know, there's like a fun quote that uh like that's relating magic to to science fiction that you know like any uh you know sufficiently sophisticated technology eventually just becomes magic uh and and that's really what's happening might as well be magic or something like that yeah yeah and and that's really what's going on in a hitchhiker's guide so that's that's been a fun place there's um this ability to like go to the end of the universe Uh, it's something that happens in doctor who also and uh like ever since the Doctor Who episodes that I watched, and now like rereading uh, the second book, uh, and now reading the second book of Hitchhiker's Guide, which is uh, called A Restaurant at the End of the Universe, I, I really just um, was reignited with this passion for like using D and D to do things that are really wild. And it's like, yeah, why not set a campaign at the end of the universe and have like the things that you do instead of affect the future affect the past and like you're trying to you know propagate change uh at the end of time through the beginning of time and uh, another thing that really inspired me with this is um a novella called uh, this is how we win the time war it's really really short i mean like maybe like 110 pages or so and uh it is this like love story between two characters where they're kind of like um trying to uh, do have a Romeo and Juliet style like romance where they're not really allowed to be together, but uh, they're doing it through uh, time travel and they're meeting in different places. And I think that uh, you could take a, an idea like that and relate it to maybe uh, a concept that we've talked about before, which is like nemeses and stuff. And, uh, you know, because these characters are, are also, it's a little bit of like Mr. and Mrs. Smith dynamic where they're like supposed to be fighting, but again, like Romeo and Juliet, they're supposed to be at war, but they actually are, uh, instead of killing each other, they are like pretending to fail to kill each other. And uh, I was like, oh, well, this could work in D&D, except that you probably actually would want to be trying to kill each other. And you could have yourself in a nemesis in the any time, uh, you know, like Strahd runs away from you in Curse of Strahd, he like turns into a, a cloud or turns into a bat or something. I, I think in Strahd, it's, it's turns into this like misty cloud that you can't uh, attack and can't deal damage to and you need to like contain it or, or shine light on it or something to stop it but it's a very good way that he gets away uh similarly in these you know hitchhiker's guide and doctor who and these books that i was reading uh they just time travel away and i thought that that like would be a perfect spell jammer type campaign where like uh your world building is like the end of the universe or in the you know top of mons olympus or something like these total grandiose places and uh, you're traveling through space and time uh, when, you know, your villain gets away, when your nemesis gets away, you're, you're chasing them around the cosmos and through time. And I thought that that was something that, you know, reading these books really reignited my passion for, like, writing a campaign that is just uh, clearly not, like, one, medieval fantasy, but also, two, not Earth-like. And uh, it's like D&D is magic, you know, there, it shouldn't be Earth-like, especially at the high levels where you're casting plane shift all the time. Yeah. No, that's that's awesome. And there's a there's a book called 
uh, 20 master plots that I've read that's really excellent uh, if, if the idea that Ariel's describing sounds too... <laughs> uh, <coughs> excuse me. If the idea that Ariel is describing sounds too convoluted to like pull off, I, I'm a very like structured <laughs> yeah, storyteller, right? True. Like I like I like an outline for things. Um, there are plot structures in that book that work really well with what you're describing. This, if when they escape, if they escape, they escape through time to another place. Um, you could use a chase plot which which has specific elements in it that are like well documented if you've ever seen a like um i think like catch me if you can if is is it is a chase plot and there are lots of examples of chase plots out there and you could combine it with a travel log uh plot right so 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 that could work pretty well so maybe maybe you should check that out, Ariel, if you're if you're really looking to to turn this into a structured the contain this chaos into a structured D and D campaign. Yeah, that's a good point. I mean, I was just rambling for like five minutes, but in reality, you're you're totally right. You picked up that the the structure of the story is a chase story, uh, but it's through different places, and like uh, you made me think of the movie time bandits you know it's like a a classic Mm -hmm. silly movie that i loved that as a kid where you are ostensibly like chasing this goal or or chasing this character through time and uh that to me is a a great way yeah to you combine a chase structure with a travelogue structure and you can really get these uh you know two i think pretty normal ideas in DD. like you do travel to a lot of places and uh, getting to see different cultures is a big part of D&D, and you do have uh, chasians, although the mechanics for chasians are, like, a little bit weird in D&D. Like, maybe that, that concept even works better in a situation where you're time-traveling. And so, uh, yeah, I really like this idea of, of combining the uh, archetype uh, of a chase uh, with the science fiction stories from Doctor Who to Hitchhiker's Guide of... Um, like running around the cosmos and, and you get this chase around the cosmos It'd be a great title for a uh, for for a you know campaign setting even a different possibilities yeah. for chases or just an adventure itself you know a chase around well, the you, cosmos you give you give your villain like a like a time warp spell right and you start your characters off at le- the first level and uh and eventually like they maybe the first time they try and catch the person they travel and then they have to jump in through the portal behind them and follow them and they get like deposited somewhere else in this new location this this new city days after the antagonist arrived right because time gets weird exactly or days before the antagonist arrives like that's like that's the plot twist two locations later um and then eventually your characters hit fifth level and they get counterspell and now all of a sudden they can attempt to counterspell the um this person when they're trying to use this time magic so it you actually probably don't have to define specific mechanics for uh get like tracking the person it's just at first at first they can't stop them from casting the spell 
uh, like maybe they could use silence to try and stop them from casting the spell but like all they need to do is lead leave the the bubble of silence right so that's like that first level level three attempt at catching them and then and then eventually they do catch them right and like and and i guess you have somewhere in the plot for if they do make it to the 20 locations or the or the 10 or six locations that they need to collect MacGuffins from throughout space and time um like their evil plan succeeds but if their evil plan fails then you have like the fallback consequence right like oh they were trying to find these MacGuffins because um if they don't unite these different MacGuffins, this other disaster will occur and yeah the the bad guy would have done something bad to the universe to avoid the disaster but now your players still need to continue on and even though they've defeated the bad guy and collected the MacGuffins from him they still need to continue on to those last two locations that you planned as the dungeon master and assemble the MacGuffins and do the the good guy thing to avert the catastrophe. So there's definitely, there's definitely a way to uh, lean into the chaos of the idea while still um, having just enough structure where you're not going insane as a dungeon master. And it feels like a great way to uh, cherry pick your favorite locations from your DM module, like bookshelf, right? Like, one one time you go to Ravnica for like one of these episodes you go to Ravnica next episode you go to the Underdark from like Out of the Abyss next episode is in Waterdeep next episode is in Saltmarsh maybe uh, which is like yeah, actually designed exactly. to have these like little vignettes it, that's right I think it'll be really really cool and you picked up on something there that I was thinking of but didn't say explicitly which I think probably means it's a good idea <laughs> that uh the this structure really naturally works for a unite all pieces uh of type of story like i'm trying to collect mm-hmm. all the rings of power or something i'm trying to um collect the uh shoot what are the what's the avengers thing the um the infinity stones yeah this is the plot of avengers infinity war <laughs> exactly and uh, god dang it <laughs> no but um, that's good and i think it's uh really great to uh, have these and and maybe even um you could go like two ways with this counter spell scenario i think like one way to make the actual like travel moments very uh exciting is to lean into this counter spell theory that uh you've had for a very long time ray uh there's actually a youtube mm, video about mm-hmm. this where um there's ways to <laughs> the only one the only one yeah <laughs> ever made <laughs> there, there's a youtube video where ray went into all the different ways that you can make counterspell this like very fun and a natural game where currently counterspell is a bit weird <laughs> we could spend an hour talking about this because we sort of have we did a podcast episode about exactly it too, so. <laughs> um but basically, you know, how do you know that the spell that uh, the big bad is about to cast is the time travel one? And so uh, there are different ways to gamify that and to make it so that you have to really save your counter spells. And then there's obviously countering counter spell that that can get in. So that's like one direction. I think it'd be really fun to make the moments where you need to stop the villain feel uh, cinematic and, and meaningful and not just like, a oh, like, haha, I counterspelled you. Um, but the other way you could lean into it is to make it a an artifact, uh, so you you can't counterspell it. 
um, but it has only a certain number of uses. And maybe it has like eight uses and there are six infinity stones to, to gather. And so like really, there's only two times that the villain can use this as like a break out of jail free card. Or, or maybe if you want to really play it you know, close to the chest, like there's only six uses and there's six infinity stones. And so you know that the big bad is only ever going to go to these locations. And if they're going to time warp without gaining one of the infinity stones, like you have, um, you know, made their final world ending artifact, you know, 16% less powerful. And that I think could be really cool um, to like introduce that idea of uh, success at each place because the, the villain can't go back. They have to go from A to B to C to D to E to F and uh, that you can succeed or fail like each mission, each planet, each point in time is a success or a failure and you can keep track of that on like a campaign doc and I think that could be really cool and goes into something that you know we've talked about that like how consumables can make Dungeons and Dragons feel a little bit more uh, earned rather than something that you can just kind of spam you know you can always spam uh, so many different abilities when you go supernova but uh, if you have a consumable you only get to go supernova like five times in your whole campaign instead of every single long rest and, and how that allows you to like maintain this idea of like long resting can be good and you can do it pretty frequently because that's how a lot of campaigns go but still have consequences for using you know your uh time travel spell that the big bad has like if the big bad can cast it every day it's much different than they if they can only cast it six times yeah that's right right like um if they have to recharge their time travel ability and it takes 10 days to recharge you know that like as long as you can catch up with them within within that time frame that they're they're stuck here for that long or, or something there's there's lots of different cool uh rules that you could make up that yeah, your players don't know anything one. about at first right like but but the villain does weird incongruous things that seem suboptimal right they, they they seem like plot holes like why why did he misty step away like why didn't he just like time travel away like why did he teleport um somewhere else yeah with with the artifact like why didn't he just move on to the next place oh he he hasn't recharged yet or he needs some sort of like port key or he needs something that's attuned to that place uh like also so yeah you you, you give your players things to chew on and, and mull over but yeah i mean i love yeah, that, that. Is cool. i love that so much that like this thing that seems like an inconsistency is actually a discovery like you know time mm -hmm. travel has so many inconsistencies like oh you messed up why didn't you just time travel to two seconds earlier which is like you know what they do in harry potter ostensibly like they're in one place yeah. and they mess up so they go back like three seconds earlier and, and you should be able to do this infinity number of times <laughs> like you should right, get to right. retry everything you know and so many time travel stories make no sense but if you have to recharge like 10 days relative to your own personal timeline uh then when a villain goes somewhere you have 10 days to catch up and that's your ticking clock and I, I love that idea. Yeah. I actually think that works really, really well with the theme of time travel in general. Kingdom Hearts uh, has a really has like these really interesting rules for time travel in universe, where you can only time travel back to somewhere that you were in the past, 
So the villain, I think they do something where they like, they split themselves into bit, kind of like horcruxes. They, they damage themselves and they make themselves very, very weak, such that far in the future, after they've regained all of their strength, they can time travel back to these multiple different possible places as their like restored self to affect change at that time in the timeline, um, which was like a re- that was a very compelling and and uh, satisfying plot twist. It like it satisfied and explained one of the like the weirdest mysteries in the series uh, that had like persisted for a very long time. Yeah, it's like oh, I thought this was an inconsistency, but actually. I just needed to learn more about the world. I think that's a really important piece of the exploration pillar uh, of D&D that, that gets missed sometimes where you're, you're like, yeah. something is not right. So I need to explore to figure it out. You know, a lot of times that's, that's not right. really how D&D works. It's like, oh, you know where the thing is and you need to go find it. And that's what exploration means. But I think on a deeper level, exploration is more like figuring out the rules of the world. Like that to me is much more compelling. Yeah. Yeah. And I feel like a lot of people don't lean in that way because one thing that Dungeons and Dragons does is it gives you a lot of rules about the world. So so adding on more, (laughs) here's hundreds of pages of rules about the world. Feel free to make more. (laughs) Yeah. Quite the, quite the value proposition. Exactly. (laughs) But um, but but we love to do it. I mean, that's all. That's a, maybe half of our episodes is like, no, no, what Dungeons and Dragons needs more rules. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> Every time I'm like, oh god, this is is this the worst advice or is this good advice? It's like one or the right, other. Right. That's right. That's right. Yeah. But Ray, you were <laughs> if you're still if you're still listening, there must be some value. <laughs> <laughs> exactly. Um, Ray, you were you were inspired by some stuff that you read uh, throughout these last few months uh do we have time to talk about it do you want to get into it yeah 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 so so the mcdm rpg um released kind of during this this time that we were away uh we want to do a play test so that way we can review the the mcdm rpg in good in good faith um and we'll we'll schedule that at some point it will be a future episode but I also, as my birthday present this year, Melissa backed the physical hard copy covers of the books, which was which is so awesome. That's I'm awesome. I'm so excited. What a great gift. Yeah, I'm freak. I'm freaking out. Um, so that will be excellent. But um, <clears throat> one of the things that I think I want to do someday is adapt our D&D content to the MCDM RPG and and maybe write some content in the tone and style of the MCDM RPG like meant for that system and and then also adapt it to 5e as well for for our 5th edition audience and a book that Matthew Colville talks about a lot is is the Black Company uh, as being like a source of uh, a wellspring of inspiration for him. So to to better understand the tone of the MCDM RPG, I've been kind of making sure that I've read up on the cornerstones that that the RPG is thematically based in. 
And uh, yeah, I read, I read the first three books of the Black Company. And what I learned is the ideas that you think are your best ideas, someone else has already done. <laughs> yeah, I mean, it's uh, my favorite thing about uh, going to see like a Shakespeare play or something, because uh, I think reading them sucks and going to see them is like pretty good, <laughs> is that uh, all these things that I'm like, oh, these are, you know, like modern problems or, or these are how books are written today. Like when you actually see people, you know, acting them out, uh, you realize that like a thousand years ago, the uh, the problems in the world were, you know, still somewhat similar and that uh, human beings were human beings. You know, it's a uh, there's been, you know, thousands and thousands of years of human literature. And uh, I think there have been a lot of people who have written down stuff. And uh, to come up with a new human experience is not uh, so easy and maybe not even a good thing you know like it's much better i think even even a new fantasy experience is is really hard i don't know if folks remember back to our mysteries episode but the the mystery that i wrote one of the the cool the things that i was most proud of in that thing was uh something that was an original idea like to me based on the exposure i had had to fantasy at the time was this idea that these like this witch hunter who lives in this town or this this village where the adventure takes place is um they project an anti-magic field and that's what makes them so dangerous to to witches like they're they're not an omnipotent spellcaster they just turn off their abilities and and make them vulnerable to like a person with a a pointy stick like all of a sudden this person who was all powerful is very vulnerable and of course that's in the black company (laughs) the the book series like the the a very important person um like their whole superpower is that they project an anti-magic field and that's their thing and i was like I had one thing that was mine. <laughs> no. Oh, no, I mean, it's not anymore. <laughs> but I think the lesson from that is not, you know, total bleak sadness that there's no originality, but that uh, you've come up with an idea that people loved and cherished, and uh, there's no shortage of uh, new great concepts that are an amalgamation of, of things that have already been created. I think most great TV shows, most great movies, most great D&D campaigns uh, are uh, heavily influenced by things, are uh, pretty obviously influenced by things. Every season of D20 is basically a uh, dropout's version of blank, you know, and uh, or maybe dropout combines blank and blank, and uh, they are no less fun or silly and, and turn out... Uh, very differently because at the end of the day like the people sitting at your table uh, are going to take Jon Snow in a different direction if you're playing you know Dropout's version of Game of Thrones uh, they're not going to make the same cho- choices that uh, George R. R. Martin did so uh, I have no problem with with stealing stuff and uh, clearly yeah your your fighter who uh, is a nullifier is something that turned out really well in, in a great story that uh, influenced a lot of different people yeah, whatever. <laughs> <laughs> I guess for me, my biggest questions about the Black Company were, you know, how did it feel to be dropped into a world where your D&D party, ostensibly your, your adventuring party, 
uh, was already, you know, somewhat infamous, had uh, allies and rivals, had access to, you know, money and underlings. Like, what was it like to not really have a, um, a, a start from zero, a start from a tavern kind of a, a story? Yeah, it was interesting. It was definitely inspiring. I think this is an idea that we've kind of touched on or, or tickled with um, our mechanics from other games that we like. We were talking about Gloomhaven, and we were talking about how you are a you're a mercenary guild in Gloomhaven, and you make characters and you retire those characters and you start new characters as as a core mechanic of the game in the guild, and and the resources kind of get. Um, are are shared amongst the like the mercenary group and um it's it's inspiring that that seems like a cool idea i i think that's a great foundation for a campaign is you are members of this 100 person organization or this 50 person organization and these are the ranks and jobs that are available in the organization, which ones appeal to you. And, um, and the organization has these weird quirks. So where every member does X, right? So like, what is, what is that for you in the black company? It's every member has a weird one syllable or two syllable name that describes them in some quirky way. And no, and no one in the black company uses their real name. That's like a rule. So, MCDM adapted that idea for for um, uh, the chain of Akron. Yeah, and and it's super effective. It's really cool. It makes for very memorable uh, characters uh, from as a reader. Like you don't have to remember. Oh, this person who is named Bob is mute. They took like a vow of silence. Um, you, it's the character whose name is silent. <laughs> took a vow of silence yeah. <laughs> or, or refuses to speak um or the character who's named one eye who one of their eyes is like glassy and and is scarred like you 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 don't forget those character traits it's very helpful and effective storytelling yeah i i loved uh the chain of akron i haven't read the black company so that's where some of my kind of understanding of this concept is coming from but i think you know, overall, there are like two competing uh, problems here that happen with a where to start a D&D campaign. You have, you know, one problem of like, oh, if my characters are, you know, brand new and level zero and don't have any friends, then uh, like they don't really have any ties to the world. They don't know what to do. And I kind of have to like put the plot onto them. I have to like introduce some like crazy call to adventure uh in the moment um and you know like ray and i have joked like they were uh ray started in a tavern in the campaign i i had with him and then i i lit the tavern on fire <laughs> to to make you know ray and the other people in the tavern uh, an adventuring party and they had to run off and see what the problem was and uh that's you know one like downside i think but the big upside is is something we talked about in a whole episode where uh, you're newcomers to the world and you're newcomers to the problem. And so if a player doesn't know anything about your world, then they are in line. They they don't have a mismatch of uh, understanding. What did we call that, Ray? Oh, God. Uh, <laughs> it was, um, the 
player knowledge the uh something knowledge gap the in not intrinsic oh it was some maybe it was intrinsic maybe it was like this this knowledge gap between the player and the character and uh if you know nothing and your character knows nothing it's it's so easy to just improv very naturally uh whereas on the other side if i ran a kind of black company style campaign my players either i think would you know have a responsibility of, of reading a few pages about their place in the world their character the allies that they have and what they've done in the past and, and what the reputation of their company has in the world um or they would show up at the table and they would ask me the dm like hey do i know this and i'd be like uh yes or maybe i'd be like roll a history check and i'd be narrating to the players their own lives it'd be like oh yeah you have a friend his name is henrik he used to live here and uh i don't love doing that i you know i want the uh improv and uh engagement coming from my players not going to my players so i think that's you know one of the downsides of this is you know you either require a lot of reading or you have a little bit of this uh dm exposition um but i think the really big benefit is that uh it can allow for moments with the right players where they just take off running and and i've seen this with really good experienced players and i've seen this with uh brand new implicit knowledge gap (laughs) it's the implicit knowledge right you have uh in a black company style game you might have this like big (laughs) implicit knowledge gap um where what the player i looked it up (laughs) you know what the character is supposed to know is not what the player knows and it can really slow down the game but uh, i've seen experienced players or new players like really run off uh, with this concept very well and what they do is they just tell you the dm things that they're comfortable with like if you have a good rapport with your friends they can be like oh i have this friend henrik he was a blacksmith and he had a son who was in the black company and so uh this is my ally in this new town we're traveling for the first two he's a different black company member and he cares about me personally so we're very very close allies we're not just um we're not just co-workers. And so uh, that's this like world building that is very yes and. And uh, I think maybe other systems do this better, like um, Seventh Sea or Candela Obscura. Like I think somewhat explicitly have rules for like things that you as the player uh, can tell the DM are true. D&D doesn't really have that. But uh, if you lean into that style, I think that could be a really, really great way to play a Black Company style game if you don't want to give your players... Uh, extensive handouts before because uh, ray ha- has talked about his experience with like handouts and how you know even if you legitimately read a handout like but if you read it a month before the game starts and, and or there's a break between sessions in the game you can kind of like forget things and that can slow the game down so um i think maybe this like yes and uh like um improv you know rpg inspired uh system where you're, you're really letting your players unfold the world in front of you the dm instead of the other way around um can make black company style games so fun and so interactive that you know i'd hope we'd see like you know 50 percent of new D games start in that style like you know maybe it doesn't have to be exactly half but i think it's a little bit you know just as random that 95% of D&D games start with like characters who don't know anything and are brand new and are in a tavern meeting for the first time. Yeah, absolutely. 
yeah, it makes it so much easier if if everyone's dipping their toes in. That's why that's why games like Avatar: The Last Airbender. I think it's like Legends of Legends the of Five the Rings? Avatar of the Last Airbender. Oh. No, um, or Avatar Avatar Legends. I think is what it's called. I have no idea. It's very compelling, right? Because <clears throat> you get together a group of people who love 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 Avatar: The Last Airbender, and you have to do no work to explain to them the setting right they just know it they know it like the back of their hand so um you can have a, a characters that are a part of the white lotus just from from the first session yeah or like kiyoshi warriors if you want it to be a little bit yep. closer to like level one D and not uh the white lotus characters who are high level D because i think it, it can be a low level experience as well you don't need to be super high level to be a part of a like important organization it's the kyoshi warriors but they find out that they're they're all benders of different elements oh yeah exactly, <laughs> the first, exactly. In the first episode <laughs> yeah. um but yeah i mean that that's that's definitely true so so that was it was a very entertaining book series very effective storytelling i think it's a good example of how you can write fantasy without needing to be um expert at some elements of storytelling that i think we've come to expect that authors will be experts in um like if you're reading a book a fantasy book these days you expect these like detailed fight scenes with with pseudo realistic uh like sword fighting physics you can start you can kind of tell when the the author hasn't actually been in a sword fight or or hefted a great sword before mm-hmm. um because of the way that they describe the fight scene this author kind of sidesteps it the the protagonist is is a doctor and even the even the scenes where he's applying um like first aid to people are not hyper detailed from that perspective um the author is very clever in the way that they sidestep the detail that would reveal that these characters that he's (laughs) actually not an expert in these things nice that's that's very cool that uh it's a good skill in life in general (laughs) but also that's cool to see as an author you know that reminds me of one of my like gripes with D D is that uh in real fighting like your shield matters a lot and in D&D, like, your shield is completely useless. Like, there isn't even a feat, I don't think, in, like, the... It matters 10% of the time. Yeah, it just matters for your <laughs> AC. But, like, if you're fighting in real life, like, you're constantly using your shield to, like, knock people off balance and to, like, right. take blows in certain ways. And it's, like, your shield is way, way more important than your sword. Like, your sword, like, does some things, but your shield does way more uh, in, like, real right. fighting scenarios. And D&D just has none of that. And it pisses me off so much. So I... I <laughs> I appreciate you mentioning that like oh view our episode about uh game choices and and buffing your your fighters or nerf your wizards buff your fighters I think was the name of one of our Yeah, exactly. our a clickbait episode title <laughs> for for that episode. Yeah, if you want more, if you want some information about how to make your marshals more interesting. Yeah, yeah, cuz the writers um, of D&D, yeah. you know, clearly 
sidestep this issue. <laughs> I think. Yeah, they're like, uh, plus two. Yeah. <laughs> On to the next thing. Yeah. But um, well, we were also yeah. going to maybe talk about, like, you know, movies we've seen and how they've inspired us. But I think that we actually got some really interesting uh, possibilities for, for how to start off and create new campaigns just from uh, from the books we've read. Now, look at that. We're so old-fashioned. We did it. We're and we're already at I think an hour and fifteen minutes. If I don't, if I don't edit this episode, which I don't think I will, because we have no time. <laughs> <laughs> that's uh, that's kind of the core premise of this episode is that we didn't have time to prepare uh, like a lecture style subject material episode. So we just kind of we talked about stuff. Um, so that cough from earlier will probably make it into this episode because i won't go and find it oh yeah if you don't like uh, mute and uh correct all the places that you normally do you'll probably just hear my cats fighting in the background of <laughs> the audio the whole time i think i was writing some notes too and it was i realized way too late in the episode that it was like making a like a scratchy scribbly noise <laughs> into the microphone yeah. so, so maybe you'll see sorry. how good we are at editing by how different this one sounds maybe <laughs> that's right that's right by the the lack thereof um but this was this was an amazing i feel very good uh this this conversation made me feel good i miss you, I missed you that's too. what that's what i've realized as a result of of doing this and yeah this was so great. Uh, recording yeah 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 it feels it feels good so this is motivating this is motivating for me to get my life in order so that I feel like I have time to dedicate to the podcast the time that it deserves. Me too. That's, Honestly, that's same. Absolutely. It was a, we missed an episode. It was sad. Yeah, that's really sad. We we were we had gone three years, two years, three years strong, I think, without missing an episode. So that's a that's a huge bummer. Um, but we're reinvigorated but, now. You watch out. We are. Wow. Yeah. Oh, boy, the vigor coursing through my veins <laughs> all right well it was great catching up all right Ray. that's it <laughs> uh until next time my name is raymond o'connor and i'm ariel rasco and thank you for listening to running off the rails If you enjoyed Running Off the Rails, please like, follow, and review our show on your platform of choice. Please follow our Instagram, Running Off the Rails, for notifications whenever we release a blog post, a new episode, or new content on the DMs Guild. If you prefer a specific type of content, please send us a message on Instagram. The jam you are listening to is Hoist by Andy G. Cohen, and you can find Hoist and more of Cohen's music on the Free Music Archive. You can find links to all of our content at runningofftherails.com or on our Facebook page, Running Off the Rails.